we're doing a listener survey to assess our whole suite of podcasts at the Washington Post, and we'd love to get your thoughts. To share your feedback, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, all one word. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and how we can better serve you. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, July 27th. In today's news, coronavirus vaccine researchers struggle to convince African-Americans to join trials. Colombian guerrillas use coronavirus curfews to expand their control. And ancient teeth show the history of epidemics is older than we thought. But first, the big idea. The United States tallied just shy of 1,000 coronavirus-related daily deaths on Saturday after a four-day streak of four-digit death tolls, the worst accounting of human loss from the virus since late May. The country reported 59,737 new infections and 566 additional deaths on Sunday, resulting in a seven-day average of infections that was slightly lower than Saturday's and an average of deaths that was a little bit higher. The world surpassed 16 million confirmed cases over the weekend and reached at least 641,000 coronavirus deaths. The United States accounts for about one-fourth of the world's reported infections and one-fifth of its death toll. Florida's average number of deaths rose for the third straight day. The state surpassed New York in total confirmed cases as Florida hit 414,000 on Saturday with its health department reporting 12,180 new infections. Only California, with double the population of the Sunshine State, has more cases than that state. And the bad news keeps coming. The Miami Marlins delayed their departure from Philadelphia by a day and will now fly home to Miami only hours before their home opener tonight. Three Marlins players received word yesterday of positive tests. For Guatemalans in Florida, essential work has led to a coronavirus outbreak in their community. Tens of thousands of immigrant laborers have enabled one Florida construction boom after another. Asked to work through this pandemic, they're now among the hardest-hit communities in the hard-hit state. Debbie Burks, the coordinator of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, called on several states yesterday to close down bars and limit the size of gatherings. Speaking at an event in Frankfort, Kentucky, Dr. Burks said that Kentucky is one of several states where federal officials are alarmed not just by rising case numbers, but rising positivity rates in tests. Other states she mentioned include Indiana, Ohio, Tennessee, and Virginia. While the most serious outbreaks remain concentrated in places like Arizona, Texas, Florida, and Georgia, Burke said, quote, we can see what's happening in the South moving north. Against this backdrop, schools and parents face tough decisions about what to do in the fall. Some schools are supposed to start opening in the next few weeks. In D.C., Valerie Kent wants to return to work full-time. The mother of a rising third-grade son scaled back her hours to part-time at an international nonprofit organization in April so that she could guide her son through his daily four hours of remote learning lessons at his D.C. public school. But she thinks this is a pivotal time in her career, and she fears what being a part-time employee will mean for her professionally. So she's taking a gamble for this fall. She's pulling her son out of their beloved public elementary school and putting him in a private school that, for now, says its campus buildings will be open full-time for in-person learning in September. 
Valerie says she realizes that she's making a bet and that she may end up in the same situation as she was at the public school, still doing all virtual learning from home. But she told my colleague Perry Stein on the Education Beat that she expects private schools will eventually be able to switch to in-person learning quicker than public schools, making it a worthwhile gamble for her and her career. Well, most of the D.C. region's public school districts have said their campuses will remain closed for the fall semester. Many private schools, which can charge more than 45000 bucks a year in tuition and fees, are still planning to bring students into classrooms for at least part of the week. This is a situation that could exacerbate existing inequalities, with wealthier students attending classes in person at private schools and everyone else using public schools' distance learning programs, which left many students behind in their academics during the spring. The fact that these private schools may offer some in-class instruction has fueled an uptick in enrollment inquiries from families who can afford to make the switch. In online forums, parents are asking one another for advice about private schools, saying they fear virtual learning at public schools will be a disaster. Private schools are indeed better equipped for in-person learning. Their campuses are typically bigger and class sizes were already smaller, sometimes just a dozen kids in a class, allowing students to better keep their distance during the school day. Unlike public schools, whose unions have pushed for schools to reopen virtually, the teachers at these private campuses are not unionized. Hundreds of private school teachers from across the country, including in the D.C. area, have circulated online and anonymously signed a statement calling on private schools to reopen virtually. Private school teachers and staff said in interviews with Perry that they think their schools are reopening because administrators do not want to lose tuition-paying parents who might withdraw, and they fear they'll have no protections if they're not ready to return. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start what will likely be another hellish week in America. Number one, each fall, the Reverend Rob Newells urges the congregation at his community church in Oakland, California, to get a flu shot. But with the first massive coronavirus vaccine trial in people set to start today, the good Reverend finds himself in an unfamiliar place, on the fence about what to tell his colleagues his community, his cousins. Biomedical research, he knows, is a long and painstaking process, and he's concerned about a vaccine campaign that seems so narrowly focused on speed. He also doesn't trust the Trump administration. The unprecedented scientific quest to end the pandemic with a vaccine now faces one of its most crucial tests, and nothing less than the success of the entire endeavor is at stake. A vaccine must work for everyone, young and old, black, brown, and white, To prove that it does, many of the 30,000 volunteers needed for each trial must come from diverse communities. It's a scientific necessity, but also a moral imperative, as younger people of color die of coronavirus at twice the rate of white people. And Black, Hispanic, and Native Americans are hospitalized at four to five times the rate of white folks in the same age groups. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, told our science writer Carolyn Johnson that if this new vaccine trial quote, enrolls a bunch of 20-somethings or white college graduates, it will not give us the information we need. History is part of the challenge here. Unethical research abuses of black and brown communities, including the notorious Tuskegee experiments that withheld syphilis treatments from African-Americans, and Guatemalan experiments that deliberately infected prisoners with sexually transmitted diseases have become cultural touchstones for many people of color, sowing deep distrust of medical authorities. That mistrust, coupled with unequal access to health care, information barriers, and racial bias, 
means they're often underrepresented in research trials. In normal times, it can take years of planning to create trials with representation from minority communities, a job that often comes down to human interaction and time. That task is all the more complicated now with face-to-face interactions limited by the pandemic, community gatherings presenting a risk for virus spread, and the rush to recruit. And this is all happening against the backdrop of a nation grappling with systemic racism and massive protests, which continued over the weekend. In the first 24 hours that a national website went online allowing people to volunteer to be considered for vaccine trials, 30,000 people registered. In a pandemic, research trials are often easier to fill. But making sure participants are people truly at risk for the disease is a fundamental tension given the need to go so fast. The irony here is that people who are following every update on vaccine development and have time to learn about the nuances of the medicine often have privileges that protect them from the virus. And people willing to participate in vaccine trials fundamentally trust the system will work for them, a feeling often absent in the communities that could benefit most from a safe and effective vaccine. One recruitment tool depends on portals or apps that people use to check their electronic health record that could alert them about the opportunity to enroll in a trial. People in minority communities are often much less likely to have a primary care doctor or health insurance, meaning they don't have easy access to online medical records. Number two, Lorena Paredes sat in the passenger seat of a silver SUV as it spread through the night roads of Colombia's Pacific Coast. The 28-year-old lawyer was nervous. She was returning from a doctor's appointment late, well past the start of a coronavirus curfew that can be as deadly as the virus itself. Armed guards in the violence-fraught nation of 50 million are imposing new levels of control during the coronavirus outbreak and enforcing some of the strictest lockdown measures in the world with harsh penalties for violators. In the port city of Tumaco, a narco-trafficking hub in the southwest of Colombia, guerrillas posted pamphlets declaring all curfew violators, quote, military targets. In a warning to all, a medical transport responding to a call after curfew was torched in May, its driver and patient killed. Lorena, driven by a friend, thought she might get lucky as she came home from her doctor's appointment. Then she saw the roadblock. Enforcers with shotguns and automatic weapons opened fire, piercing their SUV. Lorena felt stabs of pain as three bullets struck her leg. Her friend, hit in the face and arm, nevertheless managed to pull over where the pair begged for their lives. Lorena, a prosecutor in Tumaco, who handles domestic abuse cases, told R. Megan Janetsky and Tony Fiola, from the safety of a neighboring city that they were released with a warding to seek assistance on their own. No one helped them after they were wounded. Human rights groups, community leaders, and government officials say that a toxic slate of leftist guerrillas, right-wing paramilitaries, and drug cartels are using the outbreak to consolidate control over parts of a country still reeling from the aftermath of five decades of armed conflict. The increasingly violent competition shows the power of this pandemic to deepen pre-existing societal challenges and loosen the grip of government in fragile states. While the government of Colombian President Ivan Duque is focusing on a worsening coronavirus outbreak, that country's reported more than 200,000 infections and nearly 7,000 deaths, the draconian measures imposed by these armed groups are serving two purposes, to expand control over roads and communities central to narco-trafficking and illegal mining, and to reinforce their standing as the absolute rulers of their domains. Sadly, this is a global trend. 
the Taliban in Afghanistan, Commando Vermelo in Rio, and MS-13 in El Salvador, among others, have imposed their own curfews and in some instances distributed food, masks, and disinfectants in the areas they control. But the Colombian groups have distinguished themselves in the level of violence that they're applying to enforcement. Observers fear they're accelerating an already dangerous drift away from that 2016 peace accord that ended the 52-year conflict between the government and the FARC rebels. And we're now seeing new COVID outbreaks across Asia. North Korea has locked down the city of Kaesong near the border with South Korea after finding what the government's state media says is the country's possibly first official coronavirus case there. Kim Jong-un convened an emergency Politburo meeting. A coronavirus outbreak would be a disaster for North Korea because of their terrible health system, which lacks protective equipment and medical supplies. The isolated country, mindful of that threat, had further sealed its already sealed borders from the outside world as the virus spread to areas near its border with China. As early as January, North Korea shut down cross-border travel with China and Russia, although doing so severely limits its business with those countries. Authorities in Hong Kong announced today that they will ban public gatherings of more than two people, suspend all indoor dining, and mandate masks in all public places, including outdoors. And yet another example of how COVID and accompanying social distancing rules are roaring back in Asia, Vietnam officials announced today that they are evacuating 80,000 tourists from the coastal city of Da Nang after that city recorded a new outbreak. And the Moroccan government is just announcing that today they will lock down five cities, including Casablanca, because of new outbreaks. People will no longer be allowed to enter or exit Casablanca, Tangier, Marrakesh, Fez, or Meknes until the situation in those places gets under control. Number three, the earliest written records of tiny infectious organisms overhauling human societies stretch back as far as the plague of Justinian in AD 541, which is thought to have killed up to 50 million people. Or there's also the earlier Antonine plague in AD 165, which left 5 million dead, a substantial portion of the world back then. Now, there's a new nascent field. It's called paleogenomics. What they do is study DNA in remnants of ancient teeth, and they're rewriting the first chapter of humanity's entanglement with disease to thousands of years older than originally thought. The growing evidence suggests that the first epidemics forced societies to make epic-defining transformations. For example, scientists and archaeologists now believe that the plague bacteria— which caused the medieval Black Death that killed up to half of Europe's population, infected humans roughly 5,000 years ago during the Stone Age, and then it later came back. The bacteria, after it had entered the bloodstream and likely killed the host, circulated into the pulp chamber of teeth, which kept its DNA insulated from millennia of environmental wear and tear. In the past decade, scientists have been able to extract and analyze that DNA. Christian Christensen, a University of Copenhagen archaeologist and a co-author of that plague study, told Ian Moore that his group's research illuminates the causes of the big demographic transformation during the Stone Age, the so-called Neolithic decline, which archaeologists have long studied. Settlements at that time were disappearing faster than they were appearing, and within a few hundred years, most of the population had been replaced by migrants from the Eurasian steppe. In 2018, a paleogenomics team analyzed ancient teeth from Neolithic sites in present-day Germany, and they discovered the hepatitis B virus stretched back at least 7,000 years. In February, researchers at MIT published evidence that types of salmonella bacteria, which sicken about a million Americans every year, were afflicting humans 6,500 years ago. 
Microbiologist Felix Key identified salmonella DNA in teeth recovered from burial sites near the Volga River in present-day Russia, where archaeological evidence has shown that humans began to abandon foraging for pastoral living. The salmonella DNA in their teeth is the first official evidence that the adoption of this lifestyle in close contact with animals may have introduced new pathogens to humans. Like many paleogenomicists, Key uses dentist tools and dons what looks like a hazmat suit that blocks possible DNA contamination from teeth recovered from settlements thousands of years older than the Roman Empire. New methods of extracting DNA that were developed for medical purposes have made paleogenomics possible. After using the dentist's tools to recover and pulverize material locked inside a tooth, molecular biologists then use a technique called shotgun sequencing to extract all the genetic material without needing to know what they're looking for. Decrypting the data then requires the bioinformatics specialists who can match the genetic identities to known pathogens. But don't try this at home. Conducting a survey of a single set of teeth can cost upwards of $1 million. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, July 27th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.